but what makes it exciting, what makes it cost-effective and high-quality and affordable and all these different things is uh, the, the process uh, and the system and the volume behind the scenes to make something that's actually, to do it well, it's a little bit complicated behind the scenes, but on the front end, it's all about do something really, really simple, do it really, really well. You are listening to The Real Estate Sessions with Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title, Tampa District. The Real Estate Sessions podcast is part of the Industry Syndicate Media Network. For additional real estate podcasts, check out industrysyndicate.com. Now, your host, Bill Rissa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 177 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for telling a friend. It is how we continue to grow this little corner of the internet into this, this fun project that I get to keep doing, having fun with. And today I'm, I'm really excited. I am going uh, once again down under. Uh, we are going to have our second guest from the wonderful country of Australia, uh, and, and this time it's going to be Mel Myers. Mel is a co-founder of Box Brownie, and if you don't know what Box Brownie is yet, you are going to understand it completely at the end of this podcast. Uh, for me, it's been just an unbelievable resource as I help realtors with their business to be able to tell them, did you hear about this yet? <laughs> let's let's make your images really stand out. It's just an amazing thing. And, and and Mel has a great story as well. So Mel, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Yeah, great to be here. Well, you and I met, I think uh, the first time we met might have been in San Francisco at an Inman Connect. Uh, you were kind of a regular at, on the, the conference tour here in the States, right? Mm, yes. Yeah, that's right. We, we, we spend, well, even though we're in Australia, uh, most of our clients are US-based. So we you know, between myself and the few of the team, we spend a lot of time stateside. Right, which is probably quite the uh, journey. I'm trying to think that through 15, 16 hours in travel time. Yeah, well, to the, the first leg's usually to LAX, which is you know between you know, 12, 13 hours, depending on the wind, uh, and then onwards from there. So, uh, yeah, East Coast, yeah, maybe a touch further. We, we like the West Coast a lot more from a travel perspective. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's a fair trade. Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk about where you're at in Australia. You're on the East Coast. You're, you're near Brisbane, right, which I think is where uh, uh, Peter Brewer is based, near there. Uh, and so to, to kind of lay out the lay of the land for, for the listeners, because as we record this episode, the Australian Open's happening right now down in Melbourne. Uh, and I, so kind of just give us the layout of the East Coast of Australia. Yeah. So the, the East Coast is where the majority of, of the population is. So uh, you know, Australia has 25 million people across the entire country, but the vast majority of people uh, live on sort of a coastal strip, particularly the east coast, uh, with the exception of Perth, which is by itself on the west coast. Uh, once you go inland just a little bit, and I'm talking not so many miles, the population dries out pretty quickly and then it turns into desert. So uh, while there's, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of area, it's, it's not a populated uh you know, it's not populated for vast tranches of the country. So where we are, which is just north of Brisbane on a place called the Sunshine Coast, uh, going south or down the east coast, uh, all the way down and uh, through to, to Melbourne and a bit beyond, and then going a bit north, further north from here, that's, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of, yes, it's a bit coastal. Yes, you know, there's, there's sort of, you know, bigger cities, smaller towns and everything in between, but it's not 
uh, you know, it's not completely wild west in, in the same in the, in the way that uh, it's probably stereotyped on things like Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> that, that, that leads me into my next question. Uh, I'm, you, you, you've come to the States a lot and, and people instantly know that hopefully they know you from Australia. They don't con, con, <laughs> confuse you with some other uh, country. But what's the biggest misconception <laughs> that as you come here to the United States that, that, that people have about Australia? Uh, probably the biggest one. Well, it's actually I don't know if it's a, a complete misconception, uh, but you know, Australia is home to pretty much everything that can and will kill you. Uh, that much is entirely true. Uh, probably where the misconception comes in is that when you go to anywhere that's populated, pretty much where everybody lives, uh, the, the the number of things that can and will kill you drops drastically. So if you go right up north into the tropics, and you know, we're about two thirds of the way up the east coast, we can you can still go for another. Uh, easily over a thousand miles going further north. I mean, yes, you are going to get crocodiles, you're going to get every sort of venomous snake, you're going to get, you name it, uh, and beyond. But, uh, you know, in, in suburbia, uh, you know, yes, there's things around, but, you know, people aren't, you know, dying and running and scared of the street, you know, running down the streets. It's a bit like uh, probably a, a, an equivalent misconception would be if you're wandering through Vancouver uh, and you get attacked by grizzly bears every second day of the week. Uh, that's the sort of, yeah, so when you kind of put it like that, it's like, okay, well, yeah, that seems a bit silly. Uh, same sort of theory, you know, you don't have deadly snakes wandering into people's houses and killing them in their sleep. It's yeah, it's not it's not quite quite the way it rolls. Right. You know, some of the things that we've seen on in the movies or on TV or whatever it's about, um, it is that you're talking about the outback or, uh, the, the, the massive, you meant you call it a desert, right? That is the vast majority of the country. You got to be careful out there. Hmm. Yes. Yes. No, it's a sort of place where if you go to, you have to be prepared, uh, and you can have a fantastic time. I haven't been myself, but yeah, I'd love to go. Uh, but like everything it's, uh, you know, if it's, you're going out in the middle of the desert. You have to be appropriately equipped if you, if you decide to go, you know, go for that type of journey. I also, as I did my research, I found out that you're not a native of Australia, that you uh, you were born someplace else and relocated as a child. So where where were you born? And, and let's talk about how you ended up in Australia. Yeah, so I was born in London. And uh, when I was uh, little, uh, so just sort of not long starting school, uh, my, my parents and family moved, moved to Australia. Uh, the theory being it's a, a better lifestyle, better weather, uh, you know, sort of a friendlier place uh, to live. And, you know, you know, sort of, you know, we've loved it ever since. So uh, for me, uh, yes, I'm born in England, uh, but yeah, Australia is definitely home. It always has been. And ever since I was little, it's, you know, it's all I've ever known is home. And and I always like to find out from my guests about their childhood. And and I, I'm telling you, Mel, this this is going to be kind of fun because as I was doing some digging, there there's a lot about you online. And I'm sure you're highly, keenly aware of that. But if I was to ask you this question, what was a 12-year-old Mel Myers doing? How would you answer that? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's yeah. There's, there, there is a bit going out and around. 12-year-old me was, I was accelerated through a number of subjects at school, particularly maths, science, all of that type of thing. And when I was 12, I started doing a university, which or I should say college uh, externally. And uh, after doing that for a couple of years, uh, then when I was 14, I then got permission, I guess you could say, uh, to move to, to college university full time and finish off my tertiary studies uh, soon after. So you graduated from uh, university at what age? Uh, I was 17 when I finished. 
Right. And so, and obviously th- th- those are, those kinds of stories are few and far between. I've heard a few of them here in the States and, and but uh, I, I just want to ask how, how you, how, how was that? How, talk about the challenges. Um, I'm sure there was some excitement and obviously because, you know, you, you had this quest for knowledge and you could handle what you were doing. It had to be exciting and cool, but there had to be, there had to be challenges as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually funny that you say that because, as a child, and you know, you know, so when you're sort of 12 and even a little bit older than that, to be honest, you don't know what you don't know. So yes, you're aware of, of things. Yes, you know that you know what you're doing isn't normal and it's not run of the mill. But at the same time, you know, everyone says, "Oh, well, aren't you missing out on all the social side of things?" Because you know your, your peers at school, you're missing out on that. But that you know university, you're missing you know, you're missing out on that side. But you don't know, and that's the difference. Uh, as far as you're concerned, uh, you've got your small your, your little universe. You've got you've got a, a job to do, uh, so which is okay. Well, you know, do your subjects, do your homework per se, or assignments. Uh, you know, do well in your exams and kind of push forward. And uh, having that strong sense of belief and understanding, and uh, you know, being able to back yourself to do that. I mean, you don't know that you can't do something until. You believe that you can't do something, and when you look back and say, "Okay, well, you know, how can a twelve-year-old do university subjects?" Uh, and you know, in, term, in, I'm talking, you know, in terms of mathematics and statistics and all that type of thing, well, there's no one saying that you can't do it, and everyone around you is so supportive and so uh, helpful and doing everything that they possibly can to uh, to assist you on that journey, and that counts for an awful lot. So, from a uh, a much younger version of myself. You know, you know, just go for it, and you know why not? Is probably the better question rather than than how how can that be possible? Yeah, that's a, that's that's great. Let me uh, look. I'm a parent. My, my wife and I have a 25 year old son. I'm very proud of him. Uh, I, I have to imagine that your parents were, you know, a big part of of the support that was going on there. Um, talk a little bit about that. About how they um, could help this and foster this and and kind of keep everything all together for you at the same time. Hmm, yes. Well, I mean, at the time, it definitely wasn't an easy. You know, well, in general, it's not a normal thing, but especially uh, you know, at the time, it was not a normal thing. Uh, there was no uh, you know, precedent to follow. There weren't. You know, this is you know, procedures had to be rewritten. Exceptions had to be made. Uh, so there were many meetings that happened behind closed doors and trying to say, well, hey, here's here's a scenario. Here's a case where we need to uh, extend what I'm doing. We need to do something in order to you know, keep me progressing. So uh, you know, what can we do? And everyone acknowledged that it was an unusual scenario, but it's sort of, you know, well, now what do you do? And I think the end result of that is you know, until someone does something, nothing gets done. So I like the idea of, okay, well, if you want to, uh, I know it's, come, it's a bit off track, but if you want to go to a, you know, if you feel like it's going to a Greek restaurant, uh, you sort of like, okay, well, you go down the street and you go to a Greek restaurant, and that's fantastic. But if you rewind, someone had to actually go, hey, wait a minute, I think this place could do with a Greek restaurant, and actually set one up and do it, and then you know that allows people to go. So, I mean, and that's the case of everything in life, whether it's you know going to the moon, uh, you know, whether it's sort of you know doing any sort of research or endeavor or business, uh, personal or otherwise. You know, at the end, of it, someone has to take some form of action, you know, or nothing happens. So, in my parents' case. You know, and you know, and everyone around them, 
yes, they had to push for something to happen. They had to push for uh, for a result. They had to push to to allow me the opportunity to be able to do that. And uh, it took a while, uh, but uh, we got there eventually. That push, that drive you talk about, which is obviously uh, a part of your DNA, helped you at the age of 17 as you finished your studies. You went right into business. You started your first company. Talk about talk about that and what you had, uh, what you started first. Yeah, so uh, it's a couple of different things, but uh, essentially the, the first business I started was uh, it was in IT, it was in tech. Uh, in short, it was you know, fixing computers, setting up networks, uh, doing all that type of thing from a you know, IT side of things. Uh, so uh, you know that ran for a little while and and did quite well. Uh, but on, on the side, uh, I would do web development. Uh, websites, not commercially at that stage, but that was something I was doing at the time. Uh, I guess I don't know if you call it as a hobby or whether it was as a business or whether it was something else. But uh, yeah, the the actual traditional fixed computers, set up hardware, IT type of thing was the primary business. And this is right around right around 2000. I'm I'm going to guess somewhere turn of the century kind of stuff. Yeah, so that would be 98. It would be so. Okay. Yeah, I'm 37 now. Okay. Somewhere along the way here, you meet Brad, your co-founder with Box Brownie. And let's talk about the, uh, the, the genesis of Box Brownie, how the two of you met. And then I do have a, a question on the name. So I, I, I think I, I might have a guess, but, <laughs> but let's walk through that, uh, how that all got started. Okay, yes. Well, well Brad is a, a professional real estate photographer. And uh, so, so Brad has an understanding of, hey, this is, well, he would take photos by day. And then he would edit them by night, uh, and and he'd do that. He did that for around about fifteen years. So he had a very good understanding of what photos need to look like, what things and how things need to be presented in order to sell a property to present it in its best light, uh, and then also the frustrations uh, and the time and or cost involved of having to, you know, after you've done your day job effectively, uh, backing it up to make sure people get, you know, you know the agents or or individuals get their photos back uh, as soon as possible so they can get listed. Uh, Brad start, started outsourcing uh, for himself personally uh, f- photos, and the next step from there was, hey, wait a minute, if I'm doing that, perhaps other people can utilize the same service. So, so that was from Brad's side of the fence, and he uh, he, he did uh, give you know Box Brownie a push at the time. It wasn't called Box Brownie at the time, uh, but he he went down that path, set up a website, uh, actually went uh, twice and had a second go, and, uh, and you know, didn't push in the way that he would have liked to. So on the third attempt, uh, at the time it was then Brad and there was another partner who we bought out afterwards, uh, came to me and said, hey, here's what we want to do. And from my side, I, you know, I love the idea, uh, but my, thing, my, my expertise is all about uh, process and efficiency. Why, haven't, why hasn't this type of thing worked before? Uh, how can we make it better? You know, how can it be scalable? How can it be all these different things? Uh, so uh, that's how I was involved in the business originally. So at the end of the day, what we're doing, which is simply editing photos, people send us photos, we edit them, make them look good and send them back. Uh, and on face value, that's incredibly, incredibly simple. But what makes it exciting, what makes it cost effective and high quality and affordable and all these different things is the, the process uh, and the system and the volume behind the scenes to make something that's actually to do it well it's a little bit complicated behind the scenes, but on the front end, it's all about do something really, really simple, do it really, really well. Uh, I need to ask you, ask you a question about the, the name of Box Brownie uh, as well. And 
it's actually interesting because when we go to Vegas, uh, we've got boxbrand.com written all over our shirts and lots of people come, you know, come and tap us on the shoulder and say, are you selling brownies? And I, obviously they're in boxes, but it's not the case. Uh, so the box brownie, uh, or the brownie specifically, was the original uh, camera you could buy back in the 1900s, uh, the little portable, uh, literally the brownie is what it was. And that's why it's a little bit relevant to what we do today. Yeah, and I, that was my guess. I, I, I was aware of that camera and the history a little bit about that. But but I, I I could imagine people think you're one of those treats companies that uh, you know provides post closing gifts of brownies to clients. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Especially in real estate, it's, uh, closing gifts is a, is a common uh, a common thing that people think that we are. So we're going to talk a little bit about box brownie in a minute, but I, I want to talk just general photography. So that's Brad's you know cup of tea, but I'm sure you know you're heavily involved in it as well now. Is you know with this company. But talk, you know, everyone mm-hmm. on earth now owns a camera that's of pretty decent quality and they can take pictures. But, but, I'm, but, and you know this as much as I do, Mel, most of them suck. What are a couple of things that people should not be doing when they're taking pictures? Yeah, well, there's, there's two, different, uh, two different things. I mean, firstly, preparing the property for photography is a big thing. And that can't be understated. Yes, you can fix things afterwards digitally to a point, but uh, preparation is uh, something that's overlooked more often than it should be. Uh, now, in terms of the actual photography itself, there's two main uh, areas and probably best split into external photography and internal. Uh, with external photography, whether you're taking on a smartphone or whether you're using a proper camera setup, as a rule, you're probably going to, as long as you frame the photo correctly, you're going to get a reasonably good results. There's plenty of light outside. Uh, it's not so much of an issue. Where people fall over is uh, on internal photos where light might be limited, the light might be inconsistent. You're trying to, you know, you've got a, a dark sort of inside living area looking out onto a bright window with, with glare coming through. So the big thing is to try and you know, turn on all the lights, do as much as you possibly can. There's techniques, uh, which I won't go into right now, to, to try and expose the out exterior uh, when you're taking interior shots. But really, the big thing would be purely photography-wise, don't move your camera when you're trying to take it, otherwise it ends up blurry, and uh, try to make sure that, you know, turn all the lights on to try and maintain as much light as possible when you're inside, uh, inside the home. So if they, if an agent would do those sorts of things, it makes um, your job a, a little easier and makes the end result of after you process the pictures way better. And and so let's, I want to talk about that process because I, I, I really was a little surprised when I was talking to you, I think the last time in New York, about what you had behind the scenes. I kept thinking it was going to be some kind of a cool algorithm, some kind of a thing, some kind of a AI that handled all these photos. And that's not the case. So talk about how box brownie works and um, what are the tools that are part of, I guess, like the tech stack that you, you have set up. Mm -hmm. The actual editing is done. The majority of our photo editing is done in Photoshop and it's done by people. Uh, There there is the the thought and, you know, we've, you know, we've we've certainly had a a dabble and a bit beyond of, you know, trying to have a photo as input automatically enhance it and send it back. But in reality, uh, the quality isn't, anywhere close to where it needs to be to, to show off a property to its maximum potential. So essentially what we have is that 
we have a, a custom-built uh, tech stack that manages all the workflow, routes, jobs, and, and all that type of thing uh, behind the scenes. But at the end of the day, each individual photo will go to uh, an editor, and we recruit and train and manage editors all around the world who will do the job to a particular standard that we specify and monitor, uh, edit the photo to you know to make it look as good as it possibly can, and then send it back uh, to to, you know, to the client, uh, customer, agent, consumer, whoever it happens to be. So at the end of the day, it's you know we make photos look as good as they possibly can using skilled operators uh, and at a price point that makes it people think that it's automated. Yeah, I'd, I'd love for you to share with the audience like this, the, the scope of the work you can do, right? I know that for as little as a $1.50, $2, I can have a picture just sharpened or, you know, the lighting, you know, fixed to whatever extent you can. But talk about the high-end stuff, some of the other things you can do as well. So just kind of run us through that range. Yeah, so some of the more common ones uh, would be things like item removal where you, know, you might have a messy kitchen. And for around $8, we can you know, take items off the kitchen bench, tidy up the floor, uh, things that you don't, as long as we can make out what's behind uh, those items, we can we can digitally declutter that space. One of the very popular products is virtual staging. And uh, virtual staging is the process of taking an empty room or having a photo of an empty room and filling it with digital uh, lifelike furniture to help consumers visualize what that space could look like. Um, and this has come a long way in recent years where we've got a, a very particular technique and process which we're proud of to uh, make it look so realistic that you genuinely cannot tell the difference between uh, digitally staged furniture and what's real furniture. So yeah, that's been uh, a huge, huge, huge weapon for uh, a lot of agents because it completely transforms what would be either an empty bedroom or an empty living space into something that's livable and people can really visualize it. And, you know, we've heard all sorts of stories from faster, you know, faster time on market to increase sale price. Uh, all day, every day we get these stories, which is really heartening to hear. Uh, and then uh, you know, through to some of our more advanced edits where uh, we can do uh, what a new one called virtual renovations, where you can take a space, whether it be, it might be a, an unfinished building or it might be a renovation this is what it could look like if you were to spend money here's a commercial or industrial office building this is what it would look like if you were to fit it out as a as a restaurant as a gym as a uh, as an office space and all the way through to this is a facade for this is what it would look like if you were to do some landscaping so renovations is taking a space and making it look like uh, the dream selling the vision uh, so that's quite popular for uh, both in the commercial space, but also for uh, renovators, flippers, all that type of thing. And then finally, renders, which is uh, something that doesn't exist yet uh, for selling new developments, something off the plan, and we can produce uh, you know, high-quality visuals to, to help market those type of properties. That last product isn't anything new, but like everything else that we do, we're doing things to a particularly high standard at a very hard-to-beat price. If you had to break down your percentage of residential versus commercial, I'm curious. I, I'm sure you're heavily residential, but is commercial kind of growing? I think that's a market that you could do well in. Co commercial is. Right now, all of our, you know, our traction and marketing has been towards the residential space. So we do have a lot more, I mean, it's 90% plus of our business is in that area. We, we're starting just now to push towards the commercial area. 
Uh, and we, we think that uh, commercial agents, once they, you know, the few that have discovered and a lot more once they start to uh, see what is on offer, are going to be quite excited by the possibilities that it opens uh, you know, for, for both sales and leasing. I, I have a guy for you to talk to in Phoenix. Remind me. <laughs> so maybe we can <laughs> shall do, shall do. get you a foot there. Yeah. Um, let's see. Besides real estate, I, I would guess that you're, what, what you do could apply in some other businesses. Are, are there some other industries that you're you know, looking at to, to try and bring this technology to? Uh, yes, we are. So, so what we've done up until now is rather than try and offer every single product, every single edit on the market, uh, we've done a little bit of the opposite. So we've, we've focused on real estate and we've offered very specific edits that we can uh, scale, that we can produce you know, large amounts of volume at a, and everything else that goes along with that quality and price and so forth. And then we, we've slowly been adding on one product at a time, virtual renovations being the newest one. So the next upcoming steps will be, yes, there's a few more products in the real estate space that we uh, have in development that we want to, to offer quite shortly, and they're coming up soon, which you'll see. Um, but also, we, we have products such as you know being able to remove backgrounds for things like on, online retail. Uh, we're exploring the automotive space because you know, cars for sale uh, might need their stickers removed for car yards and that type of thing. So we're definitely exploring uh, and in some cases quite advanced in our plans to, to move into those other areas. But it's not going to be a, you know, we're never going to pretend to be able to do everything. We're going to have very specific products in specific verticals and do you know, anything that we do, we make sure that we do really well. But we don't offer everything to everybody. Yeah, I can imagine there's got to be a, a real concerted effort to make sure that you've got the right people in place to, to kind of handle those different verticals, right? That that's a whole back end kind of running the business kind of a thing, which someone's got to take care of, right? Yeah, correct. And because we're twenty four seven, we need to make sure that we have people running all around the clock, uh, different time zones, different countries, different cities, and uh, just to make sure that there's that continuity of service all the time. Uh, and that's part of the beauty of it. With you know, with the way that we do things, it doesn't matter whether it's two a.m. or two p.m. Uh, we're, we're always working. We're always available. So you you have people around the world that are uh, they they can then work a normal day, but it's just kind of having these all these time zones covered. It's kind of the way it works for you. Yes. So it, it, it serves two purposes. A, it's for uh, continuity of service with different time zones, uh, but on continuity of service, it also gives us insulation against uh, you know, if there's a, a pub, you know, whether it could be something like a holiday or unexpected event. Uh, maybe it could be, you know, there could be a flood in a particular city or an area, or it could be some form of outage. So we don't want to be, from a business and operations perspective, we need redundancy in every possible area. So if anything happens in any given space, yes, of course, it's, you know, it's not a good thing. But uh, as far as the world is concerned, it's business as usual because we have everybody spread out uh, on purpose. Mel, if I if I tried to get you to tell me something maybe that you're thinking about doing in the real estate space. You just, you mentioned the renovation stuff, which is cool. Is there like a next great thing that you can disclose now or do we have to wait? I I can, I can throw a little hint uh, in there and you're, you're probably maybe the first person that we've sold externally, but why not throw it to the world? Uh, In April, we are going to launch uh, the the first of our languages other than English, which will be in Spanish. Nice. Uh, so yes, we we are going multilingual, which opens up 
uh, you know, other than South America, uh, you know, large part of the Americas that would rather deal in Spanish rather than English, then we're going to be able to cater for that. And uh, that's everything from not just simply translating the website. That also means that you know, things like customer service and support, uh, we're, we're sort of in the final stages of uh, finalizing that too. So we're, we're very, very excited about that and other languages to follow in the not too distant future. Awesome. That's great. I, I love to hear that. Let me, uh, I'm looking at the clock and I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Um, just so people understand this, we're, I'm recording this at, uh, we started talking at 4.30 Eastern time on a Monday and um, Mel was at his home at 7.30 in the morning Tuesday. Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. it's just, uh, I, I imagine if you you do so much business in the States, this stuff just translates easily and automatically for you. Uh, but it's it's definitely a kind of a different feel. So I appreciate your time <laughs> and and I want to get you going. So I have to ask you the last question I ask every guest. And that is, if you could give one piece of advice to a new agent just getting started in the business, what would it be? Well, my pick would be is do simple things to make your listings look as good as it possibly can. Uh, don't, you know, as a whole, listing photos look pretty ordinary if you look across the entire industry, but that's no excuse to have it that way. So take that higher stance, prepare the property for photography, do a good job, know the products uh, and editing suites available, but effectively do simple things to make uh, your properties look good for your vendors. And that's going to be the, you know, the, you know, the, the first basic stepping stone to, to moving on to, you know, bigger things. Mel, if somebody wants to reach out to you or to Box Brownie, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, best way would be you know, through our website, you know, so www.boxbrownie.com. And yeah, like I mentioned, we're, we're always contactable, always happy to help, uh, whether it be you know, someone just looking for a bit of advice, you know, someone interested in our product, anything at all. Uh, we're, yeah, there's, there's, someone, there's always someone around to, to help out. And I'll just let everyone know, no matter where the conference is around the country, more than likely someone from Box Brownie will be there. Stop by the booth, chat these guys up, look at what they're doing. It's very impressive. And Mel, I really thank you so much for your time and for, for being on the show. I, I, like, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. Yeah, thank you for your time. Have a lovely day.